Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and I'm joining you for a very special podcast which has now become an annual institution. I'm sitting in New York in a, on the uh, 20th floor of a skyscraper with a view of the Empire State Building. You can maybe hear the New York traffic in the background with Richard Gowan, our senior policy fellow and expert on all things related to the United Nations, who's also a senior fellow at the United Nations University, to talk about the UN General Assembly, which is going to be assembling next week. All the world and their wives are going to come down to New York and talk about many of the big topics which uh, we're facing on the world stage, whether it's uh, Iran and uh, North Korea or the crisis of multilateralism, which many people seem to feel is uh, erupting or maybe not erupting. um, Anyway, is unfolding um, in the backdrop to this meeting of heads of state and government. So, Richard, what what do we expect from the UN General Assembly this year? I'm afraid that, rather as in 2017, everyone is almost entirely focused on what President Trump will do. And I think a lot of diplomats are pretty pessimistic about how Trump will behave at the General Assembly. He's going to be here for three days. Um, He's not only giving uh, the standard uh, kickoff speech to the General Assembly as a whole, but he's actually chairing a meeting of the Security Council on Wednesday. And no one is certain what he is going to say, but most assume that he's going to have some pretty tough uh, lines uh, on Iran. And uh, that he could say something completely unpredictable about North Korea, um, either negative or positive. So last year it was the Rocket Man, which we were talking about on this podcast, I think. It was. I mean, last year Trump actually demonstrated um, a pretty sharp mastery of uh, how to play the General Assembly. I mean, he got on stage and he fired off uh, a series of pretty strong one-liners, of which the most famous uh, was referring to... Kim Jong-un as Rocket Man. And now, this year, I think he's going to be firing off more one-liners too. He knows that uh, he's not just being watched by world leaders, but he's also being watched by Fox News. And he's very good at throwing out um, good quotes for for Fox. The question is, um, what sort of mood is he in on North Korea? Uh, Does he take this as another opportunity to uh, attack um, Pyongyang uh, to sort of repeat the threat that uh, he can destroy the country completely? Or is he going to be more in the conciliatory mode that uh, he felt after Singapore? And uh, he, he's also been indicating on, on Twitter The Singapore recently. summit where uh, yeah. the Trumpkin summit, as, uh, as it was called. <laughs> you know, could he stand up on stage and say, well, actually... You know, I've, I've looked Kim in the eyes. Um, he's a wonderful young man. Uh, we can do business together. Uh, no one is really sure um, of what, what road he'll take. If he is in a bellicose mood, uh, that will 
put everyone on edge. You know, last year leaders were, I think, really quite shocked by exactly how aggressive he sounded on on North Korea, and they will really be hoping that he doesn't adopt that tone again. But this year, the big confrontation is is less with North Korea and more with China. I mean, uh, going into the General Assembly, Donald Trump has announced a whole new series of of, 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 uh, uh, of, of tariffs on Chinese goods. Um, how is that going to play out? Is Xi Jinping going to be here as well? No, uh, Xi Jinping is not going to be here, nor for that matter is Vladimir Putin. Uh, neither Xi nor nor Putin come that often to the General Assembly and they're not here this year. Uh, I do think that it's quite likely that Trump will say a lot in the General Assembly session about uh, the trade issue. Again, less for his immediate audience in the room and more for uh, the domestic audience. It's worth keeping in mind that Trump is now pretty close to the midterms, uh, the polling is not looking that good for um, the Republicans, and so he will be, you know, beating, beating the trade drum because that will play well uh, on Fox and other right-wing media um, in in the U.S. Uh, the the China issue and the North Korea issue obviously intersect, and um, I think one thing that there is some concern about is that uh, perhaps in the Security Council. Um, Trump might call out uh, both China and Russia for breaking um, the sanctions on North Korea. And that's something he's done on social media in the past. But if he were actually to sit in the the Security Council and really go after the Chinese, um, perhaps in an unscripted way, uh, I think that would be a breach of protocol that would um, make diplomacy with Beijing harder going forward. So I've been... uh in New York for a few days now and in fact you and I have have gone to meet a few of the uh, ambassadors to the UN and there is a kind of general sense of foreboding about the international system and uh, a sense that people are being present at the destruction of a lot of the key bits of the architecture of the international system whether it's the Iran nuclear deal the JCPOA which we talked about often on this podcast whether it's these trade wars that are erupting Trump's assault on the the climate deal um, NATO uh, and the G7 were also topics uh, discussed on this podcast after Trump um, rubbished them in in his own uh, idiosyncratic ways Um, can you talk a bit about the, the general mood amongst... Because this is a sort of meeting of the high priests of multilateralism. It is. You know, I think overall uh, diplomats in New York are perhaps less worried about the state of the UN than about the broader pressures on the international system and especially uh, the apparent threat to the WTO. The fact is that for all his big talk, um, Trump has not been quite as bad on the UN as some people have feared. I mean, yes, he has said he will pull out of the Paris climate deal. Yes, he has pulled out of the UN Human Rights Council. But 
in and he's withdrawn funding from lots of different agencies and he's also assaulting a lot of the the different uh, bits of uh, around israel and like unra the 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 uh, support for the palestinian yeah and state but actually actually and with the exception of unra the financial damage has not been quite as bad as people have feared and you still have in new york uh, nikki haley a pretty moderate uh, Republican on most issues except Middle East issues and Haley is pretty collegial she continues to work quite well uh, with uh, European ambassadors in the Security Council you know I, I sort of feel that people think that they've just about got the situation here under control with the Americans I think Russian behavior is a much bigger source of concern um, in the Security Council but then people look beyond uh, the UN and they, they do see the trade system crumbling uh, and that, you know, that sort of creates a broader sense of, of crisis. Uh, so there definitely is a, a, lot of, a lot of nervousness and I don't think anyone is quite sure how you fix that because that isn't something you just fix through uh, doing some peacekeeping reform or fiddling with the UN development system. I mean, it's, it's very fundamental. And what about the vacuum which the US is leaving as it kind of withdraws from these multilateral institutions? How are the Chinese, um, you know, and other kind of great powers reacting to that, the Russians? The big story of the year has definitely been uh, the, uh, the rise of China in, in the UN system, which, you know, has been happening... Uh, for decades, um, but has massively accelerated. And what you hear a lot of diplomats saying is that, especially in committees dealing with development uh, and human rights, the Americans are hanging back. Uh, the Americans are not being assertive. By contrast, um, Chinese diplomats are uh, really dominating a lot of conversations. And uh, you see China putting a lot of pressure on the UN Secretariat to use its language around win-win solutions. Uh, there was a big event in the General Assembly earlier this year celebrating uh, the One Belt, One Road project. Uh, it's, it is absolutely clear that, uh, as many of us had, had predicted, that the US stepping back is just creating space that um, that Beijing is filling in and how's the multilateral it filling system. By putting more money in, by sending the higher level officials, by just being more aggressive in internal discussions. It's it's, it's primarily a an ideological push at the moment. It's uh, you know what we see is um, Chinese officials asking that the UN, uh, whether on human rights, whether on development issues, should sort of factor in. Um, you know, China's development thinking, China's emphasis on, uh, you know, sort of the One Belt, One Road and, and similar initiatives uh, into UN documents, that that should be given equal weight with more standard Western positions um, in, uh, in the UN. I mean, it's interesting, uh, earlier this year I did a project uh, with ECFR looking at what the effect of Brexit will be on the UN, because... Obviously, the UK is a significant UN player. Um, but in a lot of the interviews I had with UN officials, with European diplomats around the UN, 
the message I kept on getting was, you know, Brexit is uh, a problem. Brexit is a short-term headache. But we are much, much more focused on this sort of fundamental 10 to 20-year shift in the, um, uh, the balance of influence uh, in the UN towards, towards China. So what does it actually mean, um, a, a more Sinocentric UN system? I think it means, um, I, I mean, in, in the medium term, I think we are going to see uh, Beijing placing more senior officials in posts that would previously have been filled by Americans or Europeans. There's a recurrent but also very credible rumour that um, Beijing would like to fill the um, uh, the post of the head of peacekeeping at the UN, which is something that the France... The French has w- have always had. The French have held it for, for a couple of decades, but um, Beijing, I think, has made it pretty clear that it it feels that as it's putting more and more troops in the field in blue helmets, it should... More than any other UN permanent member of the Security Council. Yeah, and the, numbers, the number is, is going to go up, I think, quite markedly. So how many is there at the moment? At the moment, it's, it's only about... Two and a half to three thousand, so it's still not actually that massive. And what's the biggest? Like, India. Uh, I think Ethiopia, India, Pakistan are all around seven to nine thousand. Right. But China, you know, Xi Jinping a few years ago promised a new rapid reaction force of eight thousand more troops, and I think that is going to become a reality in the next couple of years. So, you know, um, what else do we see? Uh, well, uh, connected to peacekeeping again. Um, uh, the Chinese mission has been arguing that UN peacekeeping forces spend too much time looking at human rights, have too many officials focusing on human rights and at a recent budget session uh, they made a big push to, to cut funding for human rights work by um, by the UN um, so you know, I think what we're going to see over time is a huge amount of pressure on uh, the UN as a promoter of human rights and, and liberal values, um, with Beijing arguing that the organisation should be giving at least equal weight um, to, to its model of, of development and, and cooperation. Uh, and, you know, again, the fact that you have the US walking away from the Human Rights Council, which is a very troubled body by any standards, um, nonetheless sends a message that actually maybe, maybe history will, will go China's way. And what are other powers doing? We heard a lot over the last few weeks about an alliance of multilateralists or an alliance of kind of mid-ranking powers to to support multilateralism. Uh, Christian Freeland, the um, Canadian foreign minister, who's a an incredible um, uh, <clears throat> uh, bundle of energy um, and, uh, and and great ideas, has been going around different European capitals and. It took part in both the French and the German uh, ambassadors' conferences this year. Um, also, been talk about Latin America and uh, Korea and Japan being part of this new uh, coalition to to defend multilateralism from from Donald Trump. Um, how much of that are we going to see this week? I think you will hear, you know, lots of fine fine statements from from leaders about the importance of uh, protecting the multilateral system and potentially reforming it. I mean, certainly I I would expect that 
Emmanuel Macron um, from from France will give a strong speech about the importance of multilateralism, mainly because every French president always comes here and gives a very strong speech about the importance of multilateralism. That's what um, he did last year, and he'll do it again. Um, will you know? Will you see any really concrete initiatives to push back against uh, the U.S.? Uh, that I think is rather more unlikely. Uh, there is going to be a uh, a meeting with the Europeans and with Secretary General Guterres talking about filling the funding gap that the US. So we heard there's going to be today. We heard that there's going to be a record size European delegation of how how many people is it? Um, I I think fourteen top level European officials, including Donald Tusk and Jean Claude Juncker, and most of the European Commission. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, of course, this is a European Commission that is, is winding up, so everyone wants to get that, that last trip to New York in. Um, but no, I mean, there's going to be, you know, there, there's going to be sort of lots of implicit criticism of the US over climate. I think you will hear, uh, obviously, a lot of people standing up for the Iran deal. But I, I think the reality is, especially because um, Trump is so mercurial, very few people are going to really take him on face to face and there was one interesting uh, sort of sign of that this in the last 10 days or so um, there, the Americans who hold the presidency of the Security Council this month had um, announced that Trump was going to lead a Security Council session essentially on Iran and what seems to have happened is that uh, the, the Brits, the French uh, even the Russians um, went quietly to the Americans and said, "This, this is a very dangerous thing to do, because if Trump um, comes before the council and uh, focuses on Iran for for 15 minutes, you know, all our leaders, Theresa May, Macron, etc., are going to have to sit in the council and directly contradict him face to face." And so the U.S. Um, the U.S. got that message. Uh, it has changed the. Um, uh, changed the focus of the, the meeting to be on non-proliferation uh, and sovereignty, uh, something very, very vague. But I mean, I think that you know, that, that is a sign that no one, no one out there thinks that it's a good idea um, to sort of get caught up in a in a fight with Trump, similar to those we saw at the G7 and NATO. Everyone is trying to avoid those confrontations. Um, and actually, I think the U.S. mission understands that. It probably needs to avoid those confrontations too. So, what are the Iranians, the North Koreans, other people in the in the kind of front line going to do with Unger Wheat? What does a good wheat look like from um, from their perspective? Uh, for the Iranians, I think it's largely about um, public relations. Um, President Rouhani is here. He's speaking very early on. He's speaking on the morning of uh, of Tuesday probably about nine or ten slots after after Trump. Um, and, you know, Rouhani is a very experienced uh, performer at the UN. He's, uh, you know, he's quite a popular performer um, in the General Assembly. And I'm sure that he is going to give a, uh, a sort of a deliberately measured rebuttal um, to to Trump um, to sort of communicate that Iran is the responsible power in this uh, situation. Um, now, the North Koreans, 
it's a much more um, uh, complicated case. After the Singapore summit, when uh, Trump and Kim met, uh, there were a lot of rumours that um, if the de- if the denuclearization talks moved quickly, um, Kim might actually come to New York, and people were sort of. Uh, I think quite seriously imagining a scenario where he would come and you would have a, a Korean peace agreement signed in uh, in the General Assembly, for example, uh, which would have been a huge coup. Now, uh, the talks have obviously not gone well. Um, Kim has reached out to Trump for another summit. But, you know, unless there's a real Hollywood moment coming, I don't think he's coming to New York. So you're going to have a relatively, you know, an obscure minister speaking quite late, um, uh, who I suspect will make various standard uh, DPRK talking points. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, I think for both Trump and the North Koreans, actually, there's a bit of a sense of a uh, a missed date with history here, um, and the Koreans really have to sort of the North Koreans really have to sit back and see what um, see what Trump throws at them. It's notable that South Korean President Moon was just with Kim. Uh, making a lot of very positive noises, uh, clearly trying to uh, lay the ground for a a, a non-confrontational hunger. But uh, nothing is guaranteed. So who are the other people to look out for? Netanyahu uh, likes to make uh, a lot of noise at uh, hunger things, often has props in his speeches. Yeah, I mean, he's he's always a... he, he's always a good show, uh, and I, I think one shouldn't romanticise them. But I mean, I think we all sort of feel that the good old days of, of Chavez and, and Gaddafi um, have have passed. There are fewer um, sort of uh, melodramatic performances than than there used to be. Um, actually, you know, uh, it's not just. President Xi and President um, Putin, who are going to be absent, um, Chancellor Merkel isn't going to be here. Uh, I, I have to say that I, you know, talking to people around the um, around the UN over the last couple of weeks, what I what I generally hear is people saying, um, "We you know, we just we just want to survive. We just want to get through this session without a NATO summit style clash with the Americans." Um, and so. People have set expectations uh, you know, pretty low, frankly, for this uh, this UN conclave. Okay, um, are there other things that pe- that we should be looking out for? Um, I think for you know for UN geeks, um, uh, there's always interesting stuff going on in the uh, you know in the margins of, of the General Assembly. Um, one. Uh, one interesting and actually one quite constructive side event that is going to be happening uh, on Wednesday is that uh, Antonio Guterres is getting a lot of leaders and foreign ministers together to sign a new statement of commitments to strengthen uh, UN peacekeeping. That um, you know that's not a uh, that's not going to change the face of. Blue helmet operations, but I think it's a it's a worthwhile exercise, and European countries such as the Dutch and Swedes have been quite supportive of it, and we're actually seeing, um, you know, more European countries focused on strengthening UN peacekeeping in places like Mali. 
Uh, there are other worthy side events on issues that I, I don't personally follow. There's a, a big event on tuberculosis. Um, but, I mean, what I have to say is that the difference between now and, and three years ago is is really quite quite striking. Three years ago, um, President Obama was obviously still in office. Uh, you had the General Assembly endorsing the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, you had the General Assembly basically building up momentum for the Paris Climate Change Agreement. Uh, I mean, you know, I've I've been in New York long enough to see General Assemblies come and go. Um, I don't remember most of them, but there was a brief moment at the end of the Obama era where it felt like this was actually a body that was getting some stuff done diplomatically. That that feeling is certainly not. <laughs> Uh, alive today, there there is more of a sense of um, you know just trying to get through the week without without a blow up. And you mentioned Antonio Guterres, mm. the Secretary General of the UN. Um, when we were talking in earlier podcasts, um, he, the fact that he was appointed was seen, I think, by us uh, and by many other people as a, a very positive sign. It did show um, that people wanted to send someone to run the UN who is incredibly confident, uh, competent and intelligent and thoughtful and well-connected and has kind of stature, not always the profile of uh, candidates for the Secretary General of the UN. Who, 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 who <laughs> <laughs> um, But uh, how do you think he feels about the job that he's taken on a few years in now that Donald Trump is in the White House and that the world around the UN is in such a troubled condition. There's no doubt that Guterres spends a lot of time behind the scenes, um, firstly working primarily with Nikki Haley, but also to some extent with Trump, who he's got to know a little bit personally, um, trying to defend the UN um, from from this US administration. I think he's also spent a lot of time um, you know, building bridges with the with the Chinese because uh, he, like everyone else, recognizes that they, you know, they are becoming very powerful players um, in in the UN system. Uh, he he gets a lot of credit for um, balancing um, the big powers and especially the US uh, over the last two years. I I think that very few of the other candidates for Secretary General would have done it with the finesse that he has um, that said because he's been so focused on Washington he you know, he hasn't had as much time to really push uh, progress on big global issues um, that he had been talking about when he was campaigning in 2016 um, you know he's, he's speaking up for the Paris climate change deal he, he gave a good speech about the need to you know, really accept climate science once and for all uh, a couple of weeks ago um, he has also uh, contributed to one notable diplomatic process this year, uh, which was an agreement in the General Assembly on a new global compact on migration, actually the first, first ever UN uh, agreement on how to deal with, with migration rather than just refugees. Um, you know, Guterres is an outspoken uh, and passionate believer in migration as a force for good, uh, he, he swims against the tide on that. He's been willing to argue that migration is positive, despite the fact 
that many countries, including EU members, are very uncomfortable with that. Um, anyway, in the first half of this year, um, uh, with Guterres you know, pushing, the General Assembly has come up with um, a, a big compact on how to manage migration better. Uh, the US pulled out of that on ideological grounds. Hungary has pulled out of it uh, on ideological grounds. But you know, the rest of the world has stayed, stayed behind it. And uh, Guterres deserves some, some credit for that, as does uh, Miroslav Lajcak, the former um, president of the General Assembly um, from Slovakia, who you know, put a lot of political capital into getting an agreement to. Okay, so we're coming to the end of the podcast now. Maybe I can ask you one last question. We are um, thinking uh, a lot about the future of multilateralism in our conversations here, and we're going to be launching a big project at ECFR on the future of multilateralism. Can the EU save multilateralism? Sure it can. Um, I think the... uh, I think... The answer is, is quite straightforward. The EU cannot save multilateralism on its own, but there is going to be no alliance of countries uh, to defend the multilateral system and reform the multilateral system without the EU. Um, you know, Europe's stake in uh, the international system as we know it is um, really second only to that of the US, and if the US doesn't take its stake seriously, then... Uh, for all its flaws, uh, the EU has to um, hold the line. Okay, so one last thing to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Richard, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Um, I uh, well, I should say it's, it's my birthday tomorrow. I'm turning forty tomorrow, and um, I have a gigantic uh, history of intelligence by uh, Christopher, Christopher Andrew. Andrew. Yeah, um, a former professor of mine at Cambridge. I think um, as my my birthday present. So. After we've dealt with all the leaders, I can go away and read about um, read about spies. Fantastic. And I'm going to recommend a book I was given earlier today, so I haven't read very much of it yet. But, um, well, I'm recommending one I haven't read at all. So. <laughs> one of the people that I met on this trip was Mark Thompson, who's the president and CEO of the New York Times Company, and he has written a book called Enough Said, What's Gone Wrong with the Language of Politics. And... Um, uh, it's uh, a couple of years old now, but it is uh, an attempt to try and understand why Donald Trump got elected, why the British voted for Brexit, why anger is rising and public trust is falling almost everywhere. Um, and he thinks that the the kind of core of it is a corruption of the, the language of politics and the way that it's been changed. And it's a very thoughtful analysis uh, from what I've read so far of these kind of deeper political trends written by somebody who used to run the BBC and uh, Channel 4 News before taking over the New York Times. So he's at the heart of a lot of these debates about the way that digital technologies are leading both to a fragmentation of our societies and of the information space, but also uh, destroying a lot of the, the uh, business models of, uh, of media companies around the world and how that's infecting our politics. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you have, please head straight to the iTunes page and give us a five-star review and rating. Um, If you have any comments on what you've heard so far or would like to 
suggest something for the re- recommendation section at the end, the bookshelf segment, please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Richard Gowan and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. Goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenpoish, and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. Mm-hmm.